When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 238 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. People, when I tell you that I have a great show for you today, I mean, I know I say that every day, but I really have a great show for you today. Some of you are coming, obviously, look, for the basketball, and it is a great show in that regard. A lot happened since I last recorded on Thursday. Johnny Juzang will transfer from Kentucky. Mason Jones leaves Arkansas, and that's really what I think probably the first really big move out that that really does shake up that top 25 that I put out last week for next season. Shaka Smart will return to college basketball next year. I'm going to talk about that. I think there's some interesting uh, kind of ramifications from that. Finally, some SEC recruiting news, which is actually kind of interesting, and we will talk about all of that. But some of you are not here for the basketball talk today. Some of you, maybe this might be your first time listening to the podcast because I have been teasing for two weeks, well, really a week anyway, that Nick Coffey is going to join me later in the show to talk about the Tiger King, the Netflix documentary that is sweeping the country. And when I tell you that Nick and I crushed this thing, we crushed it. It was one of the most fun things that I have done on this podcast since we started it. And keep in mind, when I say fun, I had Bill Wallen on a few weeks ago. So you know that I like to have fun on this show. Nick was awesome. We talked about the good, the bad, our favorite characters, every element of the Tiger King documentary. So if you're here for the Tiger King stuff, you want to skip over the basketball stuff, go ahead. My feelings won't be hurt. I would guess probably about the 20 to 25 minute mark. Uh, Nick joins me to talk Tiger King. And if you're here for the basketball, enjoy the next couple minutes. Two quick teaser kind of notes on the Tiger King. One, um, if you have not finished the Tiger King yet, uh, there are a lot of spoiler alerts in the Tiger King segment of the podcast. And so if you have not yet finished watching it and you're planning on watching it and you don't want to know how it ends, I recommend that you do not listen to it right now. I would also say this. If you have watched the Tiger King, there are some very um, you know, interesting elements of that that might not be uh, suitable for children, whether it is kind of Carol Baskin and what may or may not have happened to her first husband, whether it's Doc Antle and what may or may not be happening on his little farm out there in Myrtle Beach. And so this might be one where if you're sitting around the house listening to the AT pod, I do try to keep it PG-13 because I know that sometimes there's kids in the car, kids in the background, whatever. This might be one 
where if you have children around, wait till they're in bed or wait till they're out of the room because let's just say that we do touch on some sensitive, mature adult subjects in that segment. So it is a great segment. I encourage you to listen to it. And I'll just tell you this. If you like the Tiger King documentary, you will love what Nick Coffey and I did. Before we get to that segment, though, I do want to remind you the regulars, please make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the best place to get this show. You can do it on iTunes. As I said, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Pod Paradise, Podbean, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can get the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Make sure you're following on Instagram. I post a bunch of stuff from the show, teaser clips, previews, pictures, photoshops, everything. Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. And of course, if you have any questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. I should mention, and I mentioned this last episode, but I want to remind, if people want an extra episode, let me know. Because like the rest of you, I am sitting at home trying to figure out ways to pass the time, and I obviously have a lot of work commitments, but there is always time to do an extra episode. I know a lot of people right now have more free time than they could have ever imagined. I know people are trying to figure out how to pass the time. I know everyone is in a little bit of a different situation. If you want more episodes of the Aratora Sports Podcast, all you have to do is ask. What I would also say also is this. If you have any ideas on guests, if you have any ideas on something different that I can do, because I don't know that right now there's enough sports content to just do a third episode. So if there's a special kind of guest you want, if you want sports guests, if you want people outside of college basketball, if you want non-sports guests, let me know. Jump into my kind of Twitter you know, private messages, my DMs on Instagram, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. However you want to get in touch with me, just let me know because I am willing to do that third episode just trying to figure out what it would look like and who it would involve and all that kind of stuff. I should also mention one other really quick note for you college hoop heads, and I know there's a lot of you. I started this at website about two or three weeks ago. My intern Zach and I help, uh, my intern Zach helps me run it. And basically, it tracks all these transfers that are going on in college basketball. I think we have about 400 kids in the transfer portal. Kids are committing left and right. We had one kid commit to Tennessee this weekend, one kid commit to uh, Texas A&M. So a lot going on in the transfer world. If you want to be keeping up on that, go to collegebasketballtransfers.com. I started the website. Me and my buddy Zach do uh, update it every single day, multiple times a day. So bookmark it. Come back two, three, four times a day to see what is going on in the transfer world. All right, so let's start with what, I don't know if it was the biggest story of the weekend, but as I tell you guys all the time, we have a lot of Kentucky fans that listen to this show, and so one story that was certainly big, speaking of transfers, was the announcement on Friday, I guess, that Johnny Juzang from the University of Kentucky will be transferring. And some of you might that aren't Kentucky fans might be sitting there, why is this such a big deal? Why are you leading the show? Well, first of all, it's my show, I do what I want. I'm like Doc Annell. This is my little kingdom over here, okay? I'm the, 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 the Joe Exotic of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and what I say goes. And if I want to talk Johnny Juzang, I'll talk Johnny Juzang. But in all seriousness, um, you know, this was a kid that was a, a key role player for Kentucky this year. He was expected to be a big-time contributor next season, and he announced over the weekend that he will transfer. And so I want to kind of get into all the elements of it because I had heard for about two weeks that this might be coming and it happened, and I want to talk about what I heard, how it went down, why it went down, and of course, what the next step is for Johnny Juzang. And so starting with kind of the who, what, when, where, why, 
like I said, uh, but for to backtrack, as I said, Johnny Juzang, he is a former four-star-ish type recruit. He committed to Kentucky last summer. He was originally part of the class of 2020 and elected to reclassify. And even when, as part of the class of 2020, he was one of the elite recruits in the class. And he chose Kentucky over Kansas and Oregon and Virginia. And he had scholarship offers from USC. UCLA was in the mix until Steve Alford was fired. So this was a highly coveted player. And he will be a highly coveted player now that he's on the, grad, or on the regular transfer market. Um, but he committed late. He showed up to Kentucky late. And he played this season. He actually had some really good games. He was phenomenal against Tennessee on the road. He played well against Florida on the road. But he made the decision to transfer this weekend. And a lot of times when a kid transfers from a place like Kentucky, the conversation becomes, well, he wasn't tough enough or he wasn't good enough or he couldn't handle the pressure of playing with other good players. And I just want to say that from everything that I've heard, and I talked to multiple people about this, like I said, I heard that this could happen about two, two and a half weeks ago. From everybody that I talk to, it has nothing to do with that. And so so I hope, I think everybody listening is smart enough, you know, to not go after kids on social media or slide into their DMs or get into their mentions on Twitter. But to me, from everything that I had heard, this had nothing to do with he was too quote unquote soft or he wasn't good enough or he was being recruited over. I don't think that's it at all. I think he genuinely enjoyed his time at Kentucky. I think he genuinely enjoyed his teammates. I think he genuinely enjoyed competing for playing time. And I think he was ready to come back for another season. But I think a couple things happened. And I think the most important thing, which is something that I talked about on my Periscope on Friday, and it's something that his father talked about in an interview with The Athletic, is that Johnny Juzang was a long way away from home. And so I don't think this was about playing time. I don't think this was about him being afraid that if he came back that he wasn't going to get on the court. I think he was just a kid that was born in L.A., very tight-knit family, very close with his younger sister, very close with his parents, that was 3,000 miles away from home. Now, I know some of you have said, well, he's got a brother who plays basketball at Harvard. That's a different deal. You go to Harvard, you're not going for one year, you're not going for two years, you're going to be there for four years, and once you get into Harvard, you don't leave Harvard. You don't leave Harvard until you get that degree because a Harvard degree is pretty badass, right? Like So so take out that his brother went to the East Coast and, and just understand Johnny Juzang's situation. 3,000 miles away from home, close-knit family. As I said a minute ago, he reclassified, so he came up a class. He was supposed to be a senior this past year, and he got to campus late. And that's not to say that he didn't bond with his teammates or that his teammates didn't you know, embrace him, nothing like that. It's just that he got to campus late. The guys had already been going through workouts, and I think it just, it just was never the natural fit that I think anybody thought it would be. Doesn't mean that, that, that Johnny Juzang did anything wrong. Doesn't mean that Kentucky did anything wrong just means that sometimes this stuff doesn't work out. And so the announcement came on Friday, and I do think that that was part of it. I think, one, he was the youngest player on the team, came to campus late, didn't have a defined role. All the other guys kind of knew each other because they had been around for about six or eight weeks before he got to campus, and it just didn't work. And I think the other factor, which John Calipari did touch on, is the simple fact that he is back home. And this is something that I had told you guys two weeks ago was going to be a factor. Transfers were going to be up because college basketball players, just like you and I, are back at home, stuck in their house. And why is that important? Well, it's important for one very simple reason. Usually, under normal circumstances, a kid finishes the season, he stays on campus for a month, six weeks, whatever, goes into April, May, whatever, and he finishes the semester. And so he's around his teammates, he's around his coaches, he's around his friends. 
And you kind of build that camaraderie, and then you go home for a couple weeks at the end of May, and then you come back ready to work for summer school. Well, with this COVID-19 coronavirus, now everyone is back home. Everyone is back with their family. Everyone is back with their friends. And so in the case of Johnny Juzang, he's 3,000 miles away from Kentucky, back with his friends, back with his family, and realizing maybe, frankly, how much he misses being close to his family, being close to his friends, all that kind of stuff. It affects him in a way that it doesn't affect players that are living a lot closer, like, say, a Keon Brooks. For people who don't know Keon Brooks, he is also a player at Kentucky. He was a freshman last year. He's from Indiana. It's an hour away. He probably sees his parents every game. It's just a lot different of a deal. And so I do think homesickness played a part. And I also think something else that John Calipari talked about that I told you would happen with this transfer stuff is that I do think somebody probably, I don't want to say anyone definitively tampered with him. That's not what I'm going to do. But I'm trying to explain to you, just like I did with Emmanuel Quickly a few weeks ago, that this stuff does happen. <laughs> if you remember a few weeks ago, I said that Emmanuel Quickly, last year after his freshman year at Kentucky, there were schools that reached out to him that tried to convince him to transfer. And everyone came into my mentions, oh, Torres, that means that they were tampering, and how are you going to... And it's like, this happens everywhere. And it isn't as simple as somebody calling up Emmanuel quickly or somebody calling up Johnny Juzang and saying, hey, leave Kentucky and come with us. That's not how it works at all. How it works is very simply this. Everybody in basketball has relationships. And so an assistant coach will call a high school coach or an AAU coach or a family friend, and they might talk about two or three different kids. Let's say hypothetically, there's an AAU coach and he was Johnny Juzang's AAU coach. He might have two kids in his AAU program that fill-in-the-blank coach is already recruiting. But before he wraps up the conversation, you better believe that he'll say, hey, listen, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm recruiting Johnny Juzang, but if Johnny wants to come home, just know that we always have a spot for him. Just know that we're going to have a place for him if he wants it or we'd love to have him or just, you know, just, just, just let him know that if he's interested in coming home, we're interested in having them. And that's why there's so little actual tampering violations in college basketball. It's because you never have a coach calling a kid. That is egregious tampering. But people talk to other people and people talk to the high school coach or the family friend or the AAU coach or whatever and just say, hey, you know, by the way, if Johnny's interested in coming home, we would love to have him. And so I'm not saying that's definitively what happened here. I am not saying that at all. But what I am saying is it's very likely he's back on the West Coast. He's around his friends. He's maybe around some of his high school friends that are playing on the West Coast. And oh, by the way, his AAU people are getting hit up like, by the way, if Johnny wants to come home, we would love to have him. And so that's what happened. That's what I believe happened. And that is why Johnny Juzang is now in the transfer portal. First of all, shout out to Kentucky because I think they handled it about as well as they could. I saw John Calipari's comments. John Calipari very simply said like, look, man. If you want to come back, you're always going to have a spot. But I think John Calipari also understands he's a kid that's 3,000 miles away from home. Don't forget, John Calipari is a guy that when he was in college actually transferred, starting at UNC Wilmington, going to Clarion, I believe, was the school he ended up at. But it looks like Johnny, Johnny Juzang is going to stay in California. And now the big question becomes, what's next? And I'm not saying that somebody tampered with him. To be clear, I'm going to list the schools that I've heard are interested in him. But again, I'm not saying that this school tampered with him or that school tampered with him, but I'll tell you the schools that make sense from my perspective. The first one is USC. Most of Johnny Juzing's AAU teammates all play at USC. So Isaiah Mobley was a freshman at USC last year. He played for the Compton Magic with Johnny Juzing. 
Evan Mobley, who is Isaiah Mobley's younger brother, a top five recruit in the class of 2020, is committed to USC. He was also Johnny Juzang's teammate. And when I actually, what was kind of interesting about this whole thing was when Johnny Juzang originally committed, what I actually heard was that maybe at the time, part of the reason he went to Kentucky was he didn't want to go to USC, play in the shadow of the Mobley brothers who are both McDonald's All-Americans. Evan Mobley, as I said, who's going to be a freshman at USC next year is the number one player in the country. But now that he's trying to get back home, now that he wants to be close to his family, I think it makes a lot of sense. Again, I'm not implying anyone tampered with him. I'm not saying that any school reached out to him illegally. I'm just telling you what schools make sense. I think UCLA maybe will try to get into the mix. I think the interesting thing about UCLA is do they have enough scholarships point blank? They're mostly filled up for the next couple seasons. And when Mick Cronin got the job, I know for a fact they tried to get in with Johnny Juzang, but it was probably a little bit too late. So I think they'll be in the mix. I saw my buddy Matt Jones, Kentucky Sports Radio, said he heard Gonzago be in the mix. I think any school on the West Coast will be interested. Washington, maybe. Washington did just take a transfer, kind of three-point shooting kind of guy. So maybe Washington isn't the best fit. But to me, I think the schools that make sense are USC, UCLA. I said Arizona, my periscope. I'm not quite as warm on Arizona anymore as I once was. Maybe Washington, maybe Oregon, maybe San Diego State. But he will have no shortage of suitors on the West Coast. But that's kind of how it happened. So I hope you guys understand that from everything that I was told over the last week, 10 days, whatever, it wasn't about, oh, he's not ready to compete and he doesn't want to be at Kentucky and he's not tough enough and like, don't buy any of that stuff. It was simply a kid being 3,000 miles away from his home, being 18 years old, getting to campus late and wanting a fresh start. All right, so let's talk now about somebody leaving on the other perspective and that is Mason Jones at Arkansas because I told you that I wouldn't really talk about kids declaring for the draft unless it really did have ramifications or it really was surprising. And I do think this was one. So Mason Jones, I think everybody listening knows, he was the number one scorer in the SEC this year. He played at the University of Arkansas, and he finished second behind Emmanuel quickly in the the whole situation with the SEC Player of the Year. So Mason Jones, I actually had in my way too early top 25 last week, I had Mason Jones returning to Arkansas. I had been told by people that I trusted that he was probably leaning that way. A day later, he decides to declare. So either my sourcing was off or he's an eight, you know, he's a 21-year-old kid and his mind changes fast. But either way, Mason Jones is leaving. This does impact Arkansas. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But first of all, from his perspective, because a lot of Arkansas fans listen to the show, what I would tell you is this is that I know that this NCA draft process is totally screwed up. And I've talked about it a ton on previous episodes, but to reiterate, with the coronavirus, COVID-19, this whole draft process is screwed up. So in previous years, the way that it would work is very simply this. You declare for the draft. You work out on campus. You finish your semester. You eventually fly somewhere to work out privately with a trainer, whether it is LA, whether it is Miami, whether it is Phoenix, whether it is Vegas. Then you go to the draft combine in mid-May, then by the end of May, you decide whether you're coming back to college or not. And if you stay in the draft, you go to the NBA draft at the end of June. Problem is, this year, we have no idea what the draft process will look like. And so there might not be team workouts. There might not be face-to-face meetings with teams. But what I do think has happened over the last couple of days is that, first of all, with Mason Jones, he was the kind of player that I do think he does need that face-to-face time because he is a guy that was not on NBA radars coming into this season, 
but had such a good season that he played his way onto radars, but he was also a guy that it would really benefit him to get in front of NBA teams. And so what I think has happened over the last couple days is a couple things. I think one, I think we're slowly learning that the NBA at some point is hoping to have a normal process. And what I mean by that is this. For the last two, three weeks, it's been so confusing as to what the NBA draft process will look like. And I think over the last probably four or five days, people in the NBA have made it clear that they hope that whether it's by June, July, August, whenever it is, that they hope to have a normal draft process where they can bring players in, where they can bring recruits or prospects to work out in facilities, but it might be pushed back a few months. So the normal draft is in June, maybe now it's in August. And so I think as players are more comfortable that there will be at some point a draft process, I think they want to test the waters and try and see if they can play their way into the first round. I also believe Mason Jones, like Emmanuel Quickly, who I mentioned last week, I think he's a kid that even though he's not showing up on first round radars or mock drafts, first round mock drafts, I think he is a kid that over time, as people break down the film, they're going to say, this is a first rounder. And my thing with Mason Jones, you know who he reminds me of? Reminds me a little bit of Grant Williams last year. Now he's a completely different player. But what I mean by that is this, is that we get so obsessed with the one and done and this kid was a McDonald's All-American, da 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 this and that. And for the first like 10, 12 picks, that stuff does matter, right? Like, it, like you're going to take the high upside kids if you're a really bad team that needs really good players. But when we get to the middle of the first round and the end of the first round, what do we have? We have teams that are we have teams that are coming off playoff bursts. They don't need immediate help. They don't need star power. And so what they're looking for is a guy that can play a role, a guy that can do one thing well, a guy that they don't need to send to the G League for two years to be ready to play. And so last year it was the same deal with Grant Williams. Well, I don't know. He's a six foot eight power forward. Is he going to be a first round pick? And then it's like, dude, he averaged like twenty one and ten in the SEC. Bring him, you know, draft him at twenty two or whatever. Bring him off the bench. He'll give you energy. He'll give you rebounding. He'll give you hustle. And you got a player that you can use. And so I think as you get later into the draft, it's less about can is this guy going to be a superstar and can this guy play a role? And so I think Mason Jones, eventually teams are going to say, dude, I don't know if he'll ever be a superstar. He probably won't be. But that dude can come in and get us buckets. And if that dude can come in and get us buckets, he can help us next year. And so I think over time, as the draft process appears that it will be more normal, and as people continue to break down the tape and say, hey, this Mason Jones kid averaged 22 a game in Arkansas in the SEC, I think it became more apparent that he was a player that probably will sneak into the first round on draft night. If I had to guess now, and you gave me over-under of pick number 30, which is the last pick of the first round, under it means he's in the first round, over it means he's in the second round, I'm going to take the under. I believe that he will be a first-round pick, and I think he got some kind of clarification that while the mock drafts might not reflect it now, he will be. I don't expect him to come back. A couple Arkansas fans did ask me that. And the bottom line is, while he can, I don't think that he will. I, his, his, his statement made it seem as though that he is ready to declare for the draft and stay in. All right, a couple more topics, and then I promise we will get to Nick Coffey, we will get to the Tiger King, and it's going to be awesome. But I do have a couple more quick basketball topics that I want to get to. The first, shout out to Shaka Smart. That dude has more lives than a cat, than nine lives than a cat. He's got more lives than Jeff Lowe from Tiger King. That guy's got so many lives. Because on Friday, it was announced by the University of Texas, they put out this big statement, Shaka Smart is our coach. 
which means that he's coming back for the 2021 season. And all I can say is, stay thirsty, mis amigos, because actually that's Dos Equis, but Corona is what saved Shaka Smart. Corona is what saved Shaka Smart, and here's why. Listen, I was talking about this two weeks ago. So first of all, shout out to me, Nostra Torres. I tell you what's going to happen before it happens and what happens. I told you two weeks ago. I said this coronavirus is going to completely throw up, uh, throw up. It's going to completely screw up the coaching carousel because schools that want to fire coaches, well, now if you want to fire them, it's going to be really hard to get places to interview people to take those jobs. And so, if you look at college basketball, just about the only jobs that have opened this offseason were coaches that got fired before this whole coronavirus hit, right? So Wyoming, Allen Edwards was there. He gets fired. Loyola Marymount opens up. Um, Trying to think of who else. Air Force opens up. Nobody big because nobody wanted to fire a coach and not be able to interview people, not be able to get on a plane and talk to people. And so with Texas, I find it so interesting that they say that Shaka Smart is, he's our coach. Really? He's your coach? Why did you wait two weeks to announce it? Because if he was really your coach, I feel like this was something that you would announce the day after the season or maybe before the Big 12 tournament. And what that statement says to me is that Shaka Smart was definitively about to get fired and then the coronavirus happened and there was basically no way to fire him. Because if you really think about it, think about it from the school's perspective and any person trying to apply for the job's perspective. And it goes back to what I tell you guys all the time. I think sometimes in sports, we look at people involved in sports and we think they have such different lives than us. And in some cases, like they do. Like LeBron James's life is different than our lives. But a lot of the issues that we face, they face too. And so think about if Texas wanted to fire Shaka Smart. If Texas wanted to fire Shaka Smart, first of all, they'd have to pay him a $10 million buyout and they'd have to call up a bunch of boosters who have seen their net worth take a hit in the last couple weeks with this coronavirus pandemic. Probably not the phone call that you want to make if you're an AD. So that's one. Two, to get a good candidate, you got to get somebody to leave a good job. You got to get Chris Beard to leave Texas Tech. You got to get, I don't know, Buzz Williams to leave Texas A&M, although there's no way Buzz Williams is going to leave Texas A&M after one year. But the reason I bring it up is because what kind of coach that has a good job already is going to leave a job? Because first of all, they got to pay you more, but you got to move your family. And when you move your family, what, me, what does that mean? Well, you got to sell your house. Well, who wants to sell their house in this climate? You got to get your kids in new schools. Well, we don't even know if there's going to be school in the fall. And so you're trying to move your family. First of all, we don't even know if you can cross state lines. There are certain states that you can't get into that state if you're coming from another state. So imagine being, I don't know, fill in the blank coach that coaches in Oklahoma or coaches in Louisiana. They might not even let you into Texas. Then you've got to sell your house. Then you've got to find your kids a school when schools aren't open. And so no coach was going to take that job under this climate. And so it allowed Shaka Smart to keep his job. But like I said, if this coronavirus doesn't happen, I'm positive that he gets fired. Because it doesn't take you two weeks to fire somebody or to, to say they're coming back if you knew all along they were coming back. The two weeks was to kind of put out feelers, to kind of talk to agents, to kind of see, can we get someone to take this job that is definitively better than Shaka Smart? And nobody in this climate was going to take it. So Shaka Smart is back for another year. I hope he drinks some Coronas because that is what he owes having this job to. And there are some real ramifications to him keeping this job. The biggest one, and many of you follow recruiting, and I said it the other day, 
There's a five-star kid named Greg Brown who is from Austin, Texas. He's one of the few remaining elite players in high school basketball that has yet to commit. And as Corey Evans said on this show a few weeks ago, his dad played football at Texas. His uncle played football at Texas. He's from Austin. He didn't go to one of these prep schools. He stayed right at the local high school in Austin. And all along, the talk has been, well, you know, he wants to go to Texas. And Texas had been the favorite. But once Shaka Smart got on the hot seat, didn't look like he was going to come back. All of a sudden, Kentucky gets involved. Memphis gets involved. Michigan gets involved. Well, now, with Shaka Smart coming back, I think Greg Brown's going to go to Texas. And I know over the weekend, he did the whole thing where he tweeted out or he Instagrammed out a picture of him in a Kentucky uniform and tried to get everybody all riled up. Guys, that's what he wants you. like, Like, don't get riled up. He's doing that to get you riled up. This is what John Calipari always talks about. We don't just want to be a hat on the table. We don't want a kid to use us to build up his profile for when he commits somewhere else. And to me, that's what this kid is doing. So I think he goes to Texas. I don't think that he would have gone if Shaka Smart had been fired. But now that Shaka Smart's coming back, this kid's a one and done. This kid only cares about being on campus for one year. And if he's got to be on campus for one year, it might as well be at home. It might as well be in front of his family. Go back to the Johnny Juzang stuff I was just talking about a minute ago. And ball out at Texas and go pro. I would also say, by the way, that keep in mind that with Shaka Smart, he brings back a really good team. And that's just kind of another interesting dynamic. Texas could bring back their top 12 scores from last year, and they could add Greg Brown. This could be a team that on paper might be like literally one of the seven or eight most talented teams in the country. And if Shaka Smart can't get it done next year, then I'll tell you what, he's never going to get it done in Texas. But I will say definitively, coronavirus saved Shaka Smart's job. I am positive that if it took two weeks for the school to announce that he is their guy, that means that he is definitely not their guy, and they were trying to get rid of him, but couldn't. All right, speaking of recruiting, I do want to wrap on one last topic, and then we'll get to Nick Coffey and Tiger King. And that is very simply this. The SEC is on a recruiting run for the ages. And why do I bring it up? So it really started on, I guess it was Friday morning. Alabama got a commitment from a five-star guard named Josh Primo. Four-star-ish, four, maybe not a total five-star, like a four-star, fringe five-star. He was one of the best available guards, though. Alabama lands him, and it's what I've been telling you all along. I said, Nate Oates, with the way they play, they play fast, they shoot a lot of threes, a lot of players are going to want to play there. So they get a commitment from him, and then later in the day, EJ Anasoki, one of the top uh, grad transfers, commits to Tennessee. And then, oh, by the way, one of the top grad transfers on Saturday, Kevin Marfo, commits to Texas A&M. And I only bring that up because I'm not going to break down each individual kid and what does he mean for the school and what's going to happen, da-da-da. The only reason I bring it up is because it is proving to me, beyond a reasonable doubt, the talent level in the SEC is through the freaking roof. And what do I mean by that? We've had some good teams in the SEC before, but I've been talking about this for two or three years. I've been talking about the fact that SEC recruiting, as the the league has invested more money into basketball, and it really does go back to probably 2012, 2013, when the SEC Network launched, and Mike Slive at the time was the the, uh, commissioner, And he said, look, schools, he went to all the schools and he said, look, we have a lot of inventory once football season ends, okay? And it is your job to put compelling basketball on the air. And so all these schools have upgraded their facilities, they've paid good coaches, and now you have guys like Rick Barnes, Buzz Williams, Eric Musselman, 
Frank Martin, Bruce Pearl, Ben Howland in this league, and the talent uptick is insane. And so I just, you know, when the Josh Primo kid committed to Alabama, that's when I realized how good this league is going to be. So you have, just in 2020, Kentucky has the number one recruiting class in the country. Tennessee has a top five class. Arkansas has a top 10 class. And LSU has a top 10 class. Insert your own LSU will wait comments wherever you please. Oh, by the way, Texas A&M under Buzz Williams currently has the number one class in the class of 2021. They already have two top 50 kids committed. Then you add in a grad transfer at Texas A&M. You add in a grad transfer at Tennessee. You add in a five-star at Alabama. You add in the fact that Bruce Pearl is bringing in guys. He may still get Jalen Green. And it just hit me. This league is going to be bananas over these next few years. You got a bunch of sharks swimming in a swim tank. Eric Musselman, Will Wade, Rick Barnes is recruiting as you know what off. John Calipari is always going to recruit well. Bruce Pearl is going to recruit well. And the talent level in this league is through the roof. All right. I've talked long enough because Nick Coffey is coming up and we talked Tiger King for 45 minutes. And so I don't want to talk anymore. It's been a long day. I'm just ready to throw to Nick Coffey. So thank you for listening today to today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, please do so. As I've said, two episodes a week, twice a week, every week going forward, because that is my job to keep you guys entertained during all of this. And if you want more episodes, let me know. If you want different kinds of guests, people outside of sports, people inside of sports, people outside of basketball, just let me know. But make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Make sure to follow on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. If you have any questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I am tired. I am exhausted. I've been working on the show all day. No, it's been a great show. I appreciate you guys. That is all for my segment. About to get to Nick Coffee. Enough for today. Shout out to my boy, Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Now, as promised, the segment that will sweep America, AT and Nick Coffee on the Tiger King. Here you go. All right, and joining me on the phone now, my good buddy, second week in a row that we have had him on the show. You can hear him on 790KRD in Louisville, 7 to 10 Eastern. Uh, normally, we would talk all sorts of basketball and football and all that stuff. Today, we are a Tiger King only segment. Nick Coffee, my man, I've been teasing this for a week. What's going on? How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Uh, I will admit I've actually watched Tiger King twice. No! Watched it by myself, and then I went back and I told my wife, look, you're going to miss out on so many good memes uh, and jokes, and you're not going to get them, so you have to watch this. And I don't think she enjoyed it as much as I did, uh, but I think she did find it as fascinating as I did, and uh, I'm looking forward to breaking it down. And and I, this this clearly in a month will not be what it is now. The uh, pike will, will die down a little bit, but right now, I feel like it's all anybody's talking about. It's all anybody's talking about. We were talking about this at Fox Sports Radio last night. Is I would love, and maybe it's available and I just haven't Googled it, to know the number of people that have watched this documentary. First of all, I love, and it's funny you mentioned, you know, my wife, uh, she didn't find it as entertaining as I do. I do think, like, the hype was so big that if, you, if you're just now getting into it, you're like, okay, it was good, but it wasn't great. But I love totally the people. Yeah, but I love the people that are like, well, you know, I just finished Tiger King and it was okay. It's like, dude, if you sat through seven one-hour episodes, it was more than okay. So don't give me this nonsense. Uh, it, it was just okay. If you sat, there is nothing on earth 
in this day and age, even in a quarantine, that people will sit through for seven hours if it's not very good. Am I crazy for saying that? Because like, we're now getting the Tiger King social media backlash of, oh, it's not as good as everybody says. And like, okay, different strokes for different folks, whatever. But I don't think that if it's at the very least not entertaining and compelling, nobody is sitting through seven hours of something. So the uh, the I think the timing for me was perfect. So you mentioned to, I swear to you, it's been a week. It feels like it's been a year. But last know. week when we talked, you mentioned that it was getting a little bit of hype, and I had, I actually had right before I picked up the phone to talk to you. That's the first I'd seen anybody talking about it. I knew nothing. Uh, just saw that it was getting some buzz on Netflix, and of course with the with what we're dealing with right now with no sports or really no entertainment to go out and do anything, a lot of people are going to binge watch. So Sunday night is when you mentioned it. By Monday, I started it. I finished it by Tuesday night. And again, I've watched it again since then, Aaron. And I think had I just waited until today to watch it a week a week later, I still would have enjoyed it. I would have found it fascinating. I would have understood the hype. But I do agree that it's gotten so much hype that people may feel a little bit underwhelmed. And really, it's one of those things that I can't, I can't say that, man, that was just great television or that was great uh, drama. It's just fascinating. Yes. I mean, there are obviously some things that, that aren't fun to see. The animals being not taken care of and whatnot. Uh, there's some awful people that are profiled in this seven-episode docuseries. But it's just a fascinating watch, and it, it, you can't turn it off. Well, and that's why I think it is so captivating, and we'll get into it in a minute. And by the way, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen this yet, uh, one, I warned you last episode, Two, this whole segment is going to be a spoiler alert, so come back, watch it later, watch it, come back and listen to this later on, but I, I agree, and I think what, you know, I think what, what, I think what, when anyone says, oh, it's not as good as it's hyped to be, what you have to contextualize is that these are real people with real lives, and this really happened. Like, if this was just like a, um, you know, like a goofy... Uh, National Lampoon movie, you'd be like, yeah, that's the stupidest movie I've ever seen in my life. But it was real life. These people really exist. Like, lives were 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 ruined. Uh, lives were gained. Um, I That's the part to me is like, okay, and the craziest thing is, obviously, look, I think I did like everybody does is, you know, I did the quick Google search as I was watching. I'd, very, I'd Google various things. But like, the thing that, that kind of stood out to me was that like this started out as a normal documentary just about people that handle these big cats and then everybody was crazy and it turned into something completely different. All right, so I want to um, I want to kind of keep this this uh, conversation structured because I have a feeling it's going to go off the rails a million different times. So I just want to start with the most basic question possible because this was the fascinating part to me and again the part that people are completely overselling now that they spent seven hours watching it. Did you have any idea that this big cat subculture existed? Because I think that's like the craziest part is like put aside that everyone's crazy and that Carol did this and Doc Antle did that and all that stuff. And we'll get into individual characters in a second. Like just the concept that there are these people out there, you know, in the underground tiger trade and the fact that there's more tigers in captivity in the United States than there are in the world in the wild like that's insane to me I had no idea this existed if I told you uh 10 days ago Nick hey I've, I read this fun fact on a, on a Snapple bottle cap there are more wild uh, there are more tigers in captivity in the United States than there are in the wild would you have believed me when I said that I would have never believed that also uh I will say this 
I did not know at all that this this world existed where there are big players in the yes. big, in the big cat tiger exotic animal game. And I think so. There's apparently a book that was really uh, just as informative, maybe a little more informative about Joe Exotic and his zoo and just him in general. Which I'm sure it's a great book. But the book apparently did not focus on what the documentary did, which was the other characters. Joe Exotic, Carol Baskin, they are of course the lead roles, but what makes the documentary what it is, is every, everything that comes with it. All the other yes. characters, that even if they have a minor role, they're just fascinating people that have wild backgrounds. And to answer your question, no, I didn't realize. And it, it makes me sad to know that there are more of those cats here as pets than there are out in the wild. But it's one of those things, honestly, if you'd have told me, I would have said, that can't be true. Let's find yes. an expert to verify that. But clearly it is. But also, I just had no clue that there are these major players like Doc Annell, like Carol Baskin, uh, and by the way, the Stark guy who, which you're right, structure needs to be in place here. But the, one of the guy who at the end helped uh, helped uh, Jeff Lowe put together the new zoo, and then they became enemies. That guy lives 20 miles from me, what? In Southern Indiana. Yes, he lives. He, he's 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 been in the news in recent months because they're trying to shut down his. So uh, yeah, I just want to throw that in there because that's one of the things people around here didn't realize until this documentary. Um, I'm getting so excited there, Aaron. I actually dropped the phone while talking, so I apologize. <laughs> um, but okay, no, we're leaving it in. Um, yeah, I, I apologize for that. But no, I, I did not know that this world actually existed. But I think one of the things that made the documentary so good was that they chose to include those people knowing that, man, you guys don't know what this world is. Yeah, and so, yes, and I want to get to those individual characters, but that's kind of the thing that stands out to me. This subculture, see, like the fact that there was this wild animal kingdom 50 miles from where you live or 30 miles from where you live is I think you just dropped the phone again. Um, that's insane to me. And, here, we're good. Sorry. And so, like, dude, but, but I, so some quick back of the envelope math. If we're saying a conservative estimate of tigers in the United States in captivity is 5,000, which is the documentary said between five and 10,000. That means that there's a hundred per state, which is insane to me. Like, like, and I get that you know you have a place like GW uh, Zoo, which has two hundred at any given time. Uh, that kind of skews the numbers, but that means that there's just people somewhere not far from us. And you know, you mentioned Tim Burke and all that stuff, but like, there are people not far from us right now that have a tiger that we don't even know about that we're like, you know, we're shopping at the grocery store with, or we're, we're, I don't know. We're, we're having a, a, a drink next to at the bar. That's the part that's insane to me is that one, that this culture exists two that these people, you know, are, are so prominent, which we're going to get to them in a second. But just the fact that there are a hundred tigers per state in the United States, which means that someone, you know, probably has a tiger. No doubt, and this this documentary reminded me of a story from my childhood that I'd completely forgotten about, but it is very wild. So I live, I grew up in Bullitt County, Kentucky, just south of Louisville. Some of those listening may know that's where former Kentucky uh, player Derek Willis is from. We're from the same area. And when I was in high school, like 15 years old, there's a guy who apparently didn't have an exotic zoo, but he had a couple of wild animals like a snow leopard. And the snow leopard got loose in Bullitt County for like 11 days, and kids weren't allowed to go outside and play. Wow. Because, you know, it, it just, that, again, this documentary reminded me of that. Sure enough, I Googled and pulled up the story from 2003. And it, again, like you said, you don't ever think about it. But there are people out there that have these as just pets, not even as a zoo. Just they have them in their home to, to be their companion. Okay. So now you just made me think of another story from my uh, youth, which is a little bit more tragic, actually. Um, 
but so, uh, you know, my best friend, uh, you know, he, he was the best man at my wedding. Um, you know, I lived with him for a year right after college and he would make the randomest friends with the randomest people. I have that natural gift too, is you just make friends with everybody. And so he had this barber named Clint and Clint was maybe potentially straight out of jail and maybe potentially on drugs, but he cut a mean head of hair. Let me tell you that much, Nick Coffee. <laughs> and, and so there's this story that comes out, and you can Google it, uh, Travis the Chimpanzee. Um, and it was like a national story, but it was a chimpanzee that somebody owned in the neighborhood, and it attacked its owner and like essentially, and I'm, this is actually a sad, serious story, but it essentially ripped off the owner's face and the, the owner had to get Holy like crap. major reconstructive surgery. And I so, Googled it. Yeah. Travis, the chimpanzee has his own Wikipedia page. So, um, but so me and my buddy, uh, you know, we're talking to our friend Clint, the hairdresser who, you know, we don't really know where he came from or what he does when he leaves the barbershop. But he goes, oh, yeah, man, you guys see that Travis story? It's like, man, I used to play with Travis when I was a kid. We used to jump on the trampoline together. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, dude. So, yes, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, we all have that experience with that one person that, uh, you know, maybe did have exotic pets. But I, I didn't, re- I had forgotten about that story until you brought it up. But I guess it is, uh, I guess it is a little bit more prevalent than than people would remember. But yes, by the way, if you want to Google Travis the chimpanzee, it is a very real thing that happened. Um, you know, R.I.P. Two thousand nine. He he was. Uh, what happened to just getting a dog or a cat? That's what I'm saying. Like, Listen, I, you know, I don't know, but that, see, and that's the part that's so crazy to me is if there's a hundred per state, like, and I understand some of them are in zoos, and Doc Animal has this many, and Carol has whatever, and whatever. It's like that means that there are people that we know. That just have a tiger. They just have a tiger. And I don't know what they do with them. And obviously, like, one of the tragic kind of things of, of this whole documentary was that we learned that really after about eight weeks, they get too big to kind of have his pets or, you know, they stop kind of being cute, all that stuff. But I just want to know, like, how many people in life I've come across that they just have a tiger and I just had no idea. Or they have a lion or they have a snow leopard or they have a chimpanzee locked up in the zoo or in their in their backyard or whatever. I have no idea. Um, all right, let's keep going because again, we're going to get off kilt a lot here, but all right. So you hit on what I think is the most important element of this documentary in terms of why I think that it works is because it's not really about the tigers. If you just did a documentary about tiger keepers, like, okay, whatever it's the people are freaking insane. And so you know, what I found interesting and what you just said is so important is that it wasn't just a story about the Tigers and it wasn't even just a story about Joe Exotic, but they pulled, they, you know, they weaved all of these narratives in together. And so it becomes this community of absolutely insane people where you have Carol who may have allegedly, probably allegedly killed her wife. You have Doc Antle, who I have some dirt on Doc Antle that I'll get to in a second. Um, he's basically running a sex cult uh, with tigers as as the bait that lures these young women in. Uh, Joe Exotic, I think uh, his actions kind of speak for himself. You mentioned the dude not far from you. And oh, by the way, there's like a Miami drug dealer who was charged with murder who now sells tigers. So I think that's why, because I was trying to think, like, why does this documentary work? And I think that's what it is, is that all these people are freaking insane and they're all kind of in the same community. Yes, and... Honestly, I, I think every, and by the time you get to like episode three or four, you're kind of realizing, geez, 
everybody here is very unlikable for the most part. <laughs> yep. But I think what made it, and what people are afraid to say, and I'm not afraid to say, because we all ha- have people that we know that have either things that you would classify, that you'd classify that make them a bad person or maybe not a good person. Uh, there are people you know that have had some awful things that happened in their life that they that they did or they were a part of. But as much as we don't want to admit it, sometimes those people who have those issues and those flaws, they have a likability to them. And Joe Exotic is in prison, and he deserves to be there for what he did to animals. Uh, I do think he got set up as far as him going to prison for plotting to murder Carol Baskin. Um, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him being in jail because he did some awful things, but I'm comfortable enough to say that guy, I can't take my eyes off him. He's sure. wild, he's entertaining, and I, and I think with his flaws all there and the awful things he did, like uh, turning straight men gay and having them marry him by giving them toys, guns, tigers, and meth, I, mean, he's, <laughs> he's not good, I can't spin that, but he had a likability to him that people can't get enough of. That is why right now everybody that watches this hates Carol Baskin, and I don't know if they like Joe Exotic, but they can't get enough of it. Yeah, so a couple things on Joe Exotic. So first of all, um, I agree 100%, and that was the first thing. Like, when I started watching this, I didn't realize that he was definitely in jail. I was like, this guy would make a hell of a podcast guest. Like, you know, because what we do... Absolutely. All I care about is being entertaining. And, like, I just want to have an informative show but an entertaining show. And it doesn't have to be super serious about sports all the time. At the end of the day, you know, nobody's going to remember whether I pick Kentucky to win the national championship or Michigan State or Louisville. But if I got Joe Exotic on this show, people would remember that. Um, So I agree with that. And I agree that there's something... Um, to him. By the way, I don't know if you saw this, but Cardi B has actually started a GoFundMe campaign to get Joe out of jail because she believes that he has been wronged. Uh, That's the duo America needs. Dude, it's a duo America needs. It's the power couple that America needs. So, no, I, I completely agree. And it is kind of ironic that, you know, he had this big downfall and all that stuff, but it also is kind of um, like it doesn't make him any less captivating as a person. So, no, I agree with all that. Um, real quick. Uh, Doc Annell, first of all, uh, Carol, I mean, are we debating that she may have allegedly uh, killed her wife? And I use allegedly in air quotes because, you know, legal liability here. I don't know how many sports podcasts she listens to here, but legal liability. I mean, do we have any doubts? Like, I will tell you, and I want to get to Jeff Lowe in a minute. I just saw an interview with Jeff Lowe, and, you know, he maybe isn't the best source of information. But he's like, oh, there is so much more out there, but that Netflix just couldn't share it because of legal liability. I mean, we're, we don't really debate that Cheryl's husband, you know, or uh, Carol's first husband, uh, you know, we, we, we can just say it, right? Well, yeah, and here's one of the, you know, you, you have to be careful. You should always be careful when it comes to saying things that could get you sued. But we're also talking about somebody who then married one of the most litigious people in the world. But they just, they, they, their lives are just consumed with trying to find ways to sue people. I mean, sure. it's not just that you might slip up and say something, they're waiting for somebody to slip up so they can sue you. That's what they do. And, you know, I, I went back and listened and, and looked at some of the excerpts from that book I'd mentioned earlier, and the, the law enforcement, they didn't mention it as much in the documentary because they probably don't want to get sued either, but they botched that investigation. Oh. And they've come out and said so much that they, they didn't initially take the steps needed hmm. to look at her as a suspect. They just never assumed it. And because they, you know, evidence that could have been uh, used and the timing of whatnot, and I don't know, fingerprints to get, forensic stuff, they just, they, they, it became 
way down the road where it kind of made sense. Hmm, she had a lot to gain, clearly a motive. Here's some circumstantial evidence. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, again, allegedly, can't prove it, don't know. But there's a, I mean, to know that there was already enough in the documentary that made it look pretty convincing that she did it. But I think others are out there saying it, there's even more to it. Well, wasn't there, what was it they, that, you know, this, her husband supposedly uh, drove his car to the airport from the private airline strip or the private airstrip and left his car there. And then the police brought the car back to the property, but actually didn't search it for like two or three days. There was a lot there, right? That's, that's part of how they just never really looked. They never really looked into it. They, they just didn't, they, I don't know if they didn't take it as serious or because keep in mind when somebody goes missing, especially this guy who clearly had connections to Costa Rica and a lot of money, like they probably didn't, it didn't really hit them that, Oh yeah, this guy's gone. Like it, it, yeah. let's keep in mind. They're not really in an area. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's Tampa or outside of Tampa or where it was when that happened, but it didn't seem as if it was a real uh, full force uh, department with a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of resources at their disposal. It kind of, I mean, just the interviews made it seem like it was some good old boys that uh, had a big crime, potential big crime on their plate and they uh and, and they didn't really know what to do also this is just me speculating here some of the people that were interviewed that kind of were saying uh there's no way he clearly was going to costa rica she didn't do it uh and there weren't maybe those aren't the exact words they used but they, there were some people that were not as convinced that she had a part in it like i'm just thinking well she probably paid him to say that because she made a lot of money and she needs to keep people quiet like i just carol baskin as far as her level of uh scheming to, 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 to sue people to, to get it. You know, she, she's, she's, she's ruthless. She's absolutely ruthless. <laughs> I agree. By the way, you mentioned the likability of Joe Exotic. I knew there was another point I wanted to make and I forgot. So just for fun, I went to Joe's Instagram page and he doesn't have nearly the following of, of some of these other people because of the fact that, you know, he's been in jail for the last uh, 18 months, spoiler alert. Um, but I went to his last post, which, you know, unfortunately was about Travis's death or whatever. And you go into the comment section and it's all people that have obviously watched the documentary. So the the comments are amazing. And I, I shared the screenshot on Twitter, but it's just like, free Joe, free Joe. Joe's the wildest zookeeper ever. Like, it's just, it's amazing. Like, Carol Baskin did it. Carol Baskin started coronavirus. Like, the, the number of comments in his comment section are unbelievable. Uh, Doc Antle. So real quick on Doc Anta, all I'll say is this. I have a female friend. Uh, when she saw I was watching the documentary, she kind of shot me a DM on Instagram, whatever. Um, you know, she's just a friend. She's married, uh, kids, whatever. I'm married, obviously, as well. But she actually told me that she applied many years ago to work at the farm, at, at Doc Antle's place. And she said that at the time, and they've since taken it off the online application, there was a stipulation in the online application that you were not allowed to date other people off of that that didn't work at whatever it's called Myrtle Beach Zoo and Aquarium or whatever. Uh, and she told me, yeah, that raised a red flag, and I kind of killed the application process right there. But Doc Anil, um interesting character. It's 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 absolutely a sex cult. Like it yeah. is no oh, yeah. even there's not even a really there's <laughs> not much attempt to hide that. That's exactly what it is, and. I mean, he, 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 to me kind of seemed like the most polished of the, oh, of, for the sure. type, of the tiger world to where he clearly knows how to run a business. He's clearly good at what he does. Uh, it's the more, uh, I guess, well, real more professional Joe exotic 
GW Zoo. Real quick, it, real quick. It, it, I mean, it, it, it kind of speaks to the fact that at the end they allege that when he did kill tigers, he wasn't just shooting them in the head and burying them under the house. He has a crematorium and he has a gas chamber and all that stuff in that if you were to allegedly dispose of tigers once they don't become useful anymore, that would be the most polished professional way to do it, not to leave a track, if that makes sense. Well, apparently he had um, he had a, a publicist and an agent that it, like a lot of his animals were used in big movies. Like he was in uh, his animals were used in Ace Ventura, other movies that I wasn't really familiar with. He had a good run in the '90s and I guess early 2000s where a lot of his animals were were used in movies. His property was used to film on. Huh. He went on Letterman. He's been on other stuff. And uh, I, I, my one thing I think about when I think of Doc Hannell. Is clearly like he's got five wives and they're all in on knowing that they share him as a husband. And he was doing some kind of a PR thing that, you know, it, the documentary painted it, it, it made it look as if there were other people there doing like a story on him, yet they still had cameras rolling for the documentary. And he says, Hey, uh, do you want me to get on this couch? And like clearly the couch was humongous <laughs> and it looked like it, it looked like an orgy couch because the guy's got five wives. I, dude, it's so funny. It, that never even crossed my mind. I just, you know, listen. I'm naive. Maybe at that point I was PG-13 in my head. I just thought that was just a big play place for baby tigers to just roam and have fun. Uh, that never crossed my mind. That's you can't spot an orgy couch like me. It's okay, Aaron. Yeah, no, listen. Yeah, if, yeah well, listen, I will be more uh, cognizant of orgy couches when I walk into strangers' houses uh, that own tigers going forward now that I know that there are people that I know who own tigers. Uh, all right. Uh, I, I did want to uh, bring together a category most obscure, your favorite, most obscure characters in the movie. So not Joe, not Carol, not Doc Annell. I will start. Um, I am all about this Howard Baskin life or Harold Baskin or whatever the hell his name is. That guy, um, you talk about a guy that knows that his wife killed somebody and is on his best behavior at all times. Um, there are so many inappropriate things for me to say right now about, you know, his manhood and, and all that stuff. Um, this is a family show, by the way. If, if people are still listening with their kids in the room, now might be a good time. Uh, once we got past the orgy couch point of the, the program, now might be a good time to turn it <laughs> off But uh, if kids are around. But um, I don't know what to say. I just find him compelling. <laughs> I find him kind of sad. I find him compelling. Um, I don't know. How that, about their marriage photos? Well, I was going to say, I don't know that they've ever officially consummated their marriage. I don't know if Carol allowed that on their wedding night or not, but... Uh, I just found him to be just just everything that I wanted out of Carol's new husband, I guess is what I would say. Well, I, so he has actually been featured in my favorite uh, Tiger King meme thus far, and it's, a, it's one of their wedding pictures where she's in a wedding dress and he's dressed as a tiger like on his knees with a leash on him. Yep. And he says, your boy, two weeks after he says the relationship won't change him. That was, <laughs> that was very funny. Um, but for me, like, I don't there were two guys that I felt kind of bad for that I kind of liked again. Like the John Rinky is probably if I had to guess the one, Aaron John Winky. John Rinky is probably my favorite side sure. character because he he actually is really good at laying out things. He seems genuine, raw, and real. He has no legs, which you would think, <laughs> man. I guess that's the cost of doing business working with tigers every day. wasn't wasn't a tiger accident. He fell and and lost his legs in a uh, in a zoo or in a, a ziplining accident. So. I, I felt bad for him, and he had a line that's an all-timer where he's getting ready to go to trial to testify against Joe, and he says, I'm sitting here in a murder for plot hire, and it doesn't seem real. 
all because I stopped on the side of the road one day to pet a bear. <laughs> and then, of course, he ended up getting the job. So he's probably at the top. Kurt Cowie, the guy who was the zookeeper who was just a wild character in his own right, like all these people are, he had a little bit of a an innocence to him about him, I think, that made him a little bit more endearing. I also felt bad for him. He's the guy who, who claimed he got the job because he saw it on Craigslist. And this one, she's not, she's not involved. There's not enough about her to make her really in this category for me. But Kelsey Saffery, Saff, the woman who had her arm bitten off. Yeah. This is a woman who had her arm bitten off and came back to work five days later, and yet she's the most level-headed person in the show. Like, she is. She seems to be the most, and I don't even want to use the word normal, but she seems to have a clear mind and be a good person. She is. Like, you know how you watch these documentaries, not even documentaries, but you watch a show and there's a narrator and she was perfect for it because she had the third. She was able to dis. She was able to work in the park every day, get her arm bitten off by a lion, and still have an outside perspective, like from an, a thirty thousand foot view. You know, she was almost the voice of yep. God that contextualized everything. And one of my favorite other obscure characters was Joe Cam- Joe's campaign manager, who had a lot of that to him as well. You know, at first you just think he's a guy working at the gun department at Walmart, um, and you think nothing of him. And then at the end, he's talking about, um, you know, well, um, uh, what we're really forgetting about is the Tigers here. And, and he gives this, like, eloquent speech, and I'm like, yeah, where did this guy – Yeah, I was like, where did this guy come from? But uh, uh, Joe it, it was really deep when he mentioned the, the fact that he had, a, he had a connection and a relationship to Joe because he saw – he was there when Joe's – second husband accidentally killed himself that's right and that's just something you don't recover from and he saw how much it impacted joe and he's the only one who actually saw it happen uh literally not mm-hmm. not on video with the security yep. cameras but he was standing there as it happened and they show his reaction uh and that's just one of those things that that could have that could have easily that that would have could have easily been something i would have never given much thought to but once he laid that out i thought you know what that's true that's a that's a connection that uh you're gonna have forever but then again he also goes on and he's kind of very the way he laid it out it was real. He's like, I, I kind of knew that's the time I'll probably never see Joe Exotic again. Yeah, and I will say this: as we're just talking this through, this is why this is the craziest documentary ever. And anyone who says that it's not as good as they thought, or blah blah blah, listen, we just talked about a dude who owns Tigers that tried to run for president, met his campaign manager at Walmart, had a woman working for him that got her arm bitten off by a lion. Like, shut up! If if you're telling me that you don't have uh, that this isn't as good. Shut up. It was an incredible documentary, and I'm not going to undersell it. I'm not going to be the dude that sits there in my freaking ivory tower saying that this thing isn't as good as we thought it would be. All right. Favorite obscure moments in the documentary, and I'll give my first one because it's not really a moment as much as it is a theme throughout the documentary, which is just any time that anything goes wrong, Joe just casually brings up that Carol killed her husband. Like, he'll be like, oh, my God, this breakfast burrito is terrible. I mean, Carol killed her husband. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, he just brings it up about 30 different times at super obscure moments, many of them that don't even involve <laughs> Carol. But anytime he gets mad, he's just like, yeah, well, she killed her husband. So um, that was one of my favorite ones. I got a few more, but but go ahead with, uh, with yours. Well, just to react to yours, as you mentioned, he would – well, here's who I am. Like he in in, in the book that I've referenced a couple of times, apparently it really lays out just uh, just how much he actually really did lean on her for content and for just you know sure. he needed her to be to be the villain like Batman eats Robin. But he would always just find a way. Well, here's who I am. 
I'm also dealing with that bitch down there in Florida. Like, he would always find a way to throw it in. If you don't know what I'm talking about, she's got me strung up in a lawsuit. Oh, and by the way, she killed her husband. Better than doctors got away with it. Like, the way that that was always part of his brand was, was unreal. But for me, the moment that I just, when I think of how wild this whole ride was of the seven-episode Tiger King series, it is Travis's funeral Ooh. where Joe is, Dressed up like a priest. That's like the least <laughs> weird thing in the moment, in sure. the scene, that he's at his, his second husband's funeral, dressed as a priest with a cowboy hat on, and then he shares the story of how, you know, if there's one person that worked on, if there's anybody who worked at the zoo, they know he loved to show his balls. And <laughs> there was never a day when I was writing a letter to a congressman or a senator, he'd come up and he'd put those balls in my face. They were like golden nuggets to that boy. <laughs> and people are laughing. And, like, you can see in the background, like, zoo workers there at the funeral were like, yeah, you know, he's right. I did see those balls, too. Like, and it was just like, like nobody there thought that was a weird thing to say at a 21-year-old funeral. And uh, then he starts, and his mom's there. The, the, yes. the man who died, his mother's there. And Joe Exotic is talking about how he loved to show his balls and put them on him and put his balls on him. And then he just starts singing out. And it's, it's, it's awake. It's a funeral. And then he, the, the mood, the crowd is not working with Joe like he wants them to. So then he kind of gives a little bit of a slow clap. And then they, then they all start kind of partying. And it was the wildest thing. Like, that's the moment where I jumped, like I jumped off the couch and thought, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, that, that is really good. And there were so many moments like that. Like, I, I went back because I was taking a few small notes uh, throughout the show. Um <clears throat> Like you have to. You can't. You can't not. That's why I watched it a second time, and I was like thinking of things we were going to talk about. I um yeah. There's just so many small moments, like when Joe is is selling sex uh, sex gel at his at his tiger shop, which I thought was a little off. The other kind of um, underlying theme that I did enjoy was uh oh man I had it written down and I'm blanking on it. Oh fuck, I'm forgetting. We'll move on. If I come back to it, I'll think of it. Um shit, give me a second here. What was it? Well, it was an underlying theme about the documentary. Oh, dude, this is this was another one of my favorite things, and I have notes written down, but I forgot about this one. How there's at least twenty five times in the documentary where somebody goes on camera and's like, "Well, and that's when I knew things were going to get real bad." And it's like, how many times can things get real bad? And it's like things weren't things weren't bad yet. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. They're like, yeah, and then Jeff. And then Joe sold the, the thing to Jeff, and then Travis died, and then this happened, and that's when I knew things were getting bad. And it's like, this whole thing, what are you talking about? You can't just keep saying this. Every th so that was one of my favorite things. All right. I do want to talk. We'll start to wrap up here. We're already at the 30-minute mark. Uh, Jeff, where do we stand on Jeff? Because, you know, I got to be honest. Um, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, so I'm just going to call – I'm just going to say it as I see it. Um, you know, there are certain people in life that – Maybe they're good, maybe they're bad, maybe they're whatever. Um, but what I'll say is this. When, when you're in on the joke, that helps the cause, right? I'll give you an example. Like Stephen A. Smith, and, and I'm comparing him to you know somebody that was allegedly involved in a murder for hire plot, so I apologize, Stephen A. But like Stephen A. Smith <laughs> was like the super serious, like yelling and screaming. And then he kind of realized like yelling and screaming is my deal, so I'll make fun of it. And now, like, Stephen A. Smith does, like, the baby Stephen A. Smith videos. And, like, he kind of get like, Stephen A. Smith is kind of, like, in on the joke at this point. And he's still Stephen A., but he's also, like, in on the joke. 
And like that's kind of where I stay with Jeff is he's like, yeah, I'm kind of a scumbag and I don't really have money and like, you know, I kind of swindled. But like, I'm Jeff, man. Come on now. Like, I'm Jeff. Come on. I'm wearing my little, uh, as Drew Franklin said, my little affliction t-shirt with my little bandana under my flat brim. Like, I'm just Jeff. Come on. You can't be mad at me. And like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I know I'm supposed to hate Jeff. I really don't hate Jeff, though. I'm just going to throw it out there. Dude, I'm so glad you said it, and I want people to know this was not rehearsed. This was not something Aaron and I got on the same page about. I don't understand why Jeff came off as one of the more unlikable guys compared to others. I'm not saying he's a good guy. He clearly uh, has a background in being a con man. Uh, he, he admits that he, he set Joe up. He admits that he didn't take the zoo. And I think because people got so wrapped up in Joe and his zoo and to know that Jeff Lowe stole it. That just people were going to be anti Jeff Lowe because they're so pro uh, Joe Exotic. However, I'm with you. Really, the only thing in the documentary that that really sh- is is about him not being him being the worst is what people are saying. It's about the guy who uh, testified, which is one person we haven't talked about yet, uh, which is the the guy who clearly had a huge role in this whole thing. The guy who was the informant for the FBI, uh, James Garrett Garrison. Yeah, um, but Jeff Dan Garrison runs him down. Uh, clearly, uh, the the friends of Joe Exotic run him down, including John Rinky, and then of course Joe Exotic. There's a bunch of phone calls from prison that they show where he's talking about all these bad things about Jeff Lowe. So I'm not saying he's a good guy, but his actions throughout this docu series, other than taking the zoo from Joe, what, <laughs> what what made him such an awful person? Yes, he was a weird. He was he was trying to get to he was trying to hook up with women by luring them in with tigers. He has that line that is so cringeworthy, I won't say it, but where he mentions, you know, a little bit of... Uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking you, about. You, you, you all know what I'm saying. If you don't, you'll go back and watch it and you'll see it. Um, but I'm with you. I, I, I can't sit here and claim he's a good guy. He fits with everybody else as far as being somebody that just doesn't appear to live a great life and be a great person. But I don't think he's quite in the same tier as the Carol Baskin as the Joe Exotic to an extent and, of course, as, as, as Doc Annell, which Doc Annell, I mean, Really, if you break it down, I mentioned earlier, he's polished. He may be the you, – you could make a case for a lot of different people to be the worst of the worst yep. in this whole thing. But I'm with you. I don't really feel like Jeff Lowe, he seemed to be real, if that makes sense. Like, he didn't have the fact that he was a guy who clearly uh, went after younger women by luring them in with tigers. He didn't have the fact that he wanted to get Joe out of the business and set him up and take his due. Like, he never want, I just feel like in, in the end, he seemed to be more authentic than the others. Well, that's exactly it. And I didn't really think about it till we just talked it out, but that's exactly what it is, is that Doc Annell, like, thinks that he is this spiritual, like, holy person. And Carol Baskin... He literally, they, his, his legal name is that he's God. Exactly. And, like, Carol... Uh, thinks that she's doing this great cause by saving tigers when or whatever big cats, be, but she's profiting off them like everybody else. Where Jeff Lowe's kind of just like, yeah, man, you know, it's just. And I'm still a little confused as to why he even wanted this business in the first place and why he's still investing money in it at this point. Um, and I don't think he's a good guy. And listen, I'll just be honest. I hope all these places get shut down because I feel bad for the animals. But sure, while they're open, I don't hate Jeff. And I'll give you a great Jeff example. So. I saw this yesterday on Twitter, on Saturday on Twitter, uh, and I've only watched about <laughs> I've only watched about half of it. Um, but he did an interview with David Spade on Instagram, um, and I was watching about half of it before we got on the phone. And but the tease for the uh, interview from Jeff or from whatever social media account was promoting it was hashtag Meet the New Nanny, 
And he was like in on like, yeah, no, I hired that chick and she's around and I'm not saying what's going to happen when the lights go out, you know, like when my wife's out of town, I'm not like, but he's just Jeff. Like, I don't know. I don't hate him. So, uh, all right, real quick. I mean, I guess we'll wrap. So like Joe was kind of framed, right? Like we, we all kind of agree. And I will say, by the way, for as much as I love, I, as much as I don't hate Jeff, James Garrettson, that guy is one sketchy MF man. And, uh, I don't know what to say. I, I don't trust that guy one bit. Um, and you meet people like that in life sometimes. I don't like that guy. Well, he's, the abs- he's the absolutely most predictable guy that will that will work with the cops to snitch to improve his situation. Like he's got a lot of cons going on. <laughs> he kept calling Jeff Lowe a career con man. Yep. Yet there were like four different layers to Garrettson's uh, different cons. I mean, uh, and. and I, I, Honestly, he actually ended by saying, hey, there's more to be said. I'm, I don't know if I'm done snitching or not. Like, that's kind of how the show ended. Yep, 100%. Uh, all right, so Joe, like he was obviously set up, right? I mean, I, I don't know that there's like a big uh, – and maybe that's part two of Tiger King down the road is that uh, Jeff finally gets, you know, what was maybe coming to him or whatever. Uh, James gets what's coming to him. But, you know – I I'm torn on how to feel about Joe in the big picture. Like, and the the documentary does do a good job of laying out, like, um, you know, essentially that, uh, you know, they they pin these animal cruelty charges on him because the case was kind of flimsy. So I feel like Joe kind of got what was coming to him because, you know, like he definitely just killed some perfectly healthy tigers because he had no use for them anymore. He couldn't afford them anymore or whatever. I actually had somebody DM me, by the way. I don't know if it's true or not, but with this stuff, I believe everything that he said that he visited <laughs> He visited the GW Wildlife Park many years ago and bought a cub, uh, a, a wolf cub, like uh, uh, on-site, uh, and it was like a cash transaction, and he left with a wolf cub. So I guess what I'm saying is like, yeah, Joe definitely got framed. And, like, yeah, they pin some animal, animal cruelty charges on him. Like, I don't know that I really feel bad that he's in jail. Like, I feel like he kind of got what was coming to him, right? Like, we, we kind of agree on that, or? Yeah, no, he definitely, it, it's what he, and again, his his defense about the animals was that he did it because they were, they were sick and they, they needed to be put down. And clearly there was enough evidence that, and testimony from people who worked at the zoo that uh, said that was not the case. So that alone. Makes even if you even if you think he was set up, take out the whole motor for plot. He, he probably was going to be doing time for the way he treated tigers, and that's what he deserved. That's 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 kind of like you said, he got what was coming to him. But what I wonder is, he was clearly going to defend himself. They show and, and play. They don't show it. They play the recorded conversation with the producer of this documentary and Joe the day after he testified before he got the verdict, and he felt really good about his about his 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 testimony. So he didn't take a plea deal. I think had he taken a plea deal, he could have gotten. A much lighter sentence, and he may be free in a few years. But he clearly was going to fight it because he was going all in. Um, so, uh, look, does he deserve to be in prison? Yes. Does he deserve to be in there for what twenty one, twenty two years that he got? Probably not, because one, the crime didn't really happen as far as the murder. He, I don't, I, I believe he was set up in prison. So it really, for me personally, this is my own opinion. It really just comes down to what you think is justice for what he did with animals. And yeah, prison is deserving, but for that long, probably not. All right, we've talked for forty minutes at this point. I don't think there is. Is there anything that we missed about this documentary that we haven't talked about? No, not from the documentary. But I would like to share kind of a wild story, and there are little okay. stories that come out of people who knew of Joe Exotic before he was the celebrity that he is now. People who had 
visited uh, the zoo many years ago. Sure. Even Shaquille O'Neal has a, has a yes. connection to Joe Exotic. But do you remember when Joe talked about how he drove his vehicle off of a, uh, tried to drive his vehicle off of a bridge one night to kill himself? Ve- and that's how he ended up going to ther- therapy in Florida, meeting somebody who was in the animal world, and that's where it all got started. Uh, there's a guy by the name of J.D. J. Moore who shared a really interesting story. He is the um, creator of Texas Disposal. It's a Texas-based media outlet. And this was just one of the wildest stories I've heard. But he found out today or yesterday after watching it that he actually has a connection to Joe Exotic. And so back in, in his high school, when he was growing up, small town in Texas, apparently there was always a story that there was a ghost in their area, in their community, uh, because a cop tried to kill himself by driving his car off of a bridge uh, many years ago. And for, I guess, decades, there was this there was this 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 this, this myth of this this former cop that's now a uh, uh, nobody really knew the full details of what would happen. And as the, as the story gets shared over decades, Morse added to it. But in, but in the end, uh, he found out that this guy that people thought was a ghost was actually Joe Exotic because <laughs> he did try to kill himself by driving his car off a bridge. And turns out that he was the police chief at the age of 20 years old when that happened. And I guess he verified through, because he now works in media, he verified with a local newspaper in East Vale, Texas, in the early 80s, that confirmed that it was Joe that did that. No. And here, they, here he is growing up. He's like my age. And they've, they've had this, this myth in their little town in Texas. There's this ghost that's a former cop. And he watches this documentary to find out, wait a second, still <laughs> found the same area. I just think that's wild. That is insane. I, I would I, I Did they ever reference that he was in law enforcement? Like, I feel like... They may have. Same but here. I, I did not know that. I do not think they mentioned that. They mentioned that he had a tough time with his sexuality with his family. Yep. And at the age of 19, he was in Texas. But they, you're right. They never – because all the stories that you read mention he was a former sheriff or a former police chief. And I had no clue that was the case. But all these things that reference him prior to the documentary, they mentioned former law enforcement official, now exotic animal guy. Like that's kind of what he was known as. And also uh, other things another, – another aspect of Joe – that led to him kind of building what he built many years ago is he was in law enforcement. That helped him. He had connections with people. He knew ways around doing things. He had connections huh. with, uh, with a lot of people. That's wild. I, I did not, I had no idea. That's unbelievable. Uh, let me ask you this. Why do you think they, why do you, because I do think that's, that's something they left out in the story that he ever worked in law enforcement. And I feel like that was probably by design, but I don't know why. I feel like if anything, that would have just added to the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the craziness of this guy and his story. Maybe it normalizes him. Maybe it makes him seem like just a normal dude. Maybe it um, sure. more relatable. Maybe even yeah. though it's not relatable at all. <laughs> or maybe it scares people that law enforcement can be uh, these type of characters. I really don't know. It's a, it's a great question. No, I I don't have a good answer for that. But I'm trying to even like on Joe Exotic's Wikipedia page. It doesn't say it doesn't make any reference to working in law enforcement. That is crazy though. By the way, I'll, I'll read the DM. I obviously won't say who it's from. But this is uh, from – I got a DM after I was tweeting about, the sh- uh, about this documentary. It says, I visited that park back in 2009 and bought a wolf hybrid pup for 200 bucks. Could not believe they were just selling them like that. And I, t- I DM'd back and I said, which park? And he said, GW Park in Oklahoma where Tiger King takes place. I visited there to play with a tiger, all the works, and the place was super sketch. So, uh, you know, we got some Joe Exotic uh, uh, stories coming out of the woodwork here. Uh, but, dude – this was a ton of fun. Um, it was a lot of fun, man. 
I hope to God that somehow Netflix comes out with some crazy documentaries in the next week or two uh, that can somehow maybe match this for from an entertainment value. Um, and by the way, I, I'm still I'm still mad from the beginning of the conversation when we're starting to now get the anti um, the 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 Tiger King backlash. Like, j- just listen to what we talked about for the last 35 minutes. There's no it's way. just people want to be different and yeah. go against the grain. That's, that's all it is. Yeah. So, all right. Well, if, uh, dude, I, I need, like, a nap after that conversation. That was intense. Uh, it was, I, I was, I'm not kidding, man. I always look forward to our conversations. This is one I was really looking forward to. <laughs> Nick Coffey, uh, make sure to follow him on Twitter, at the Card Connect. Uh, make sure to follow his show, 790KRD in Louisville. You doing anything fun for the show? I mean, I, you're, you're still on Monday. For people who don't know, Nick's still on Monday through Friday, same time, 7 to 10, drive time uh, in the morning, morning drive. Um, anything interesting, different? You get any cool guests that you wouldn't have normally gotten uh, this time of year? Anything standing out? We're getting creative. Uh, that's, uh, that's a challenge at times, but, you know, uh, there's not any specific – event that we're covering like normal this time of year um but really what i think has become and maybe it'll die down eventually but i just find it fascinating those who listen to the show and, and interact and everybody because this is something we can all relate to regardless of what your favorite sport is what your favorite team is we're all finding ways to try to pass this time and entertain ourselves without sports and without uh being able to go out and and, and be around the groups of people and i just that's that's something that I don't know if we've ever had an event that took place to where as many people can relate to. So that's the way I'm trying to spin it to where we still need to talk sports and have some sports flavor. But there's a ton of things. I mean, as we discussed a week ago, everybody's impacted by what's going on right now to at least a certain extent. Absolutely. And that's something that, you know, we've done a little bit on our radio show. And shoot, if people want to email in Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com, if you just want to tell us how you're passing the time. And it's funny, Nick, because even like, um, this past week, I had a few people reach out like, dude, do an extra episode, do this, do that, because I think everybody is just looking for ways to pass the time. So if you have a fun story about how you're passing the time or what you're doing, uh, let us know. Nick Coffey, 790KRD in Louisville. You can listen to him 7 to 10 Eastern. Follow him on Twitter at the Card Connect. Follow me on Twitter at Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. On Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Uh, that's it. Nick, I appreciate the time, uh, and we will uh, we'll do this soon. I don't know. I mean, if there's stuff to talk about, we'll do it again. If not, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we won't. But hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get some stuff to talk about here these next few weeks. Thank you as always for having me. It was a lot of fun, and look forward to doing it again soon, brother.